Hello, Seattle. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. It's so wonderful to see you all here tonight. Welcome. You're here at Ignite Seattle. How many of you, is it your first Ignite Seattle event? Raise your hand. Wow. Fantastic. You have been lied to. This is not a good event. It is a fantastic event. Yes. How many of you have been to more than two Ignites? Excellent, thank you very much. We know that you are the reason all the people who raised their hand the first for the first question are even in the room, so thank you. So my name is Scott Bergen, I'm your MC for the evening, and my first duty is to try to set up the room, make sure the room is up to training, up to level, up to the proper standard to support our speakers who have worked so hard. So I have a few little questions for, to ask you. First, stage right, how are you feeling tonight? Good, excellent. The balcony, how are you doing? Way back there. Okay, you could use a little work, but you're outmanned, outpersoned by the rest of the room. I understand that. Stage left, how are you feeling? Ah, okay. I don't know, uh, center stage, can you outdo stage left? All right. Well done. Uh, the joke as MCs is that stage center outnumbers all the other stage sides, so you kind of should win by default. So well done for you. Now, uh, part of the tradition we have here at Ignite Seattle is that the MC for the event has to explain what Ignite is with an Ignite talk. So without, actually one other thing I need to do actually, if you have, if you're near the front, I see five empty seats, are those two seats empty? Anyone sitting there? Anyone sitting here next to you, Jen? No. So, the front row is a critical place if you are a speaker. You want active, lively, fun people in the front. So I have a free drink ticket for anyone who's willing to move forward to fill these empty seats. There's about seven of them. Okay. Oh, what are you waiting for? It's a, whoa. Okay, that, I've gone past my safety zone. Move on up, you're too slow. Someone can beat them to it. This is like a game show. First person to get there gets the seat. All right. Wow, okay. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, there's one right there. What is one more seat? One more seat. Yes. Yes. Adam, can you help, help me out? Give them those tickets. Thank you, sir. Thank you. A few more tickets to give away. Here you go, you, move, you guys move forward. Oh, give it to them, please. You can take one as your tip. Fantastic. Did you get your ticket? We're out of tickets, I'm sorry. No, I'm kidding. We have one more, we have one more. Two more. Zach, can you help me out there? Okay, I'm gonna move on now. One more. Zach, there's one more up front, please. Too late, sorry. First come, first served. This, by the way, is an Ignite tradition. So what you wanna to do to game it is sit in the second row and wait for me to say this and then move into the first row. So now all of you first timers, you are now insiders with insider knowledge. Okay, so now the first row is filled so our audience gets an energetic connection with the crowd right away. And now it's time to begin the tradition of explaining Ignite as an Ignite talk. Are you ready for that? Get the show started. I am ready to. The central power behind family and society and civilization is storytelling. That's a belief that we all share here at Ignite. 
It's the thing, if you have a belief or a ritual or a tradition, behind those things are stories. So Ignite Seattle's mission is to use the power of storytelling to help connect people together, to give ordinary citizens a chance to tell something they've learned over their life, a story, a lesson, something, up on a stage in front of people like them. And that's what we do. Now, part of that mission is diversity. We believe in that word diversity in many different ways. A primary one is in the kinds of stories you're going to hear tonight. Some of the stories are going to be entertaining. Some of the stories are going to be deeply heartfelt and personal. Some of the stories are going to be hard to describe, and you're going to be thinking later on tonight, did you like it, did you not? It's going to sit in your mind, you're going to think about it until the next day. And that's part of what we like about this event and why people come and why we sell out so fast, is it's a wide range of things you're going to hear tonight. And it's up to you as a thoughtful, interesting person to decide for yourself what you connect with and what you don't. We're open submission. Anyone can submit a talk. We got about 80 submissions for this event to fill 11 slots. We pick the best talks we think are the strongest. We combine them together and curate them into what we hope will be a fantastic evening for you. We're known for the format, five-minute talks, 20 slides. They automate. Now, public speaking is hard enough. We make it even harder for speakers. Once they get up here, their slides go on their own. Now, that means there's a challenge and a request I have to make of you as the audience. You should be very grateful you're sitting there. You don't have to do any work. All these people work really hard, so cheer them on, be the best possible audience that you can be. Can you do that for us? Excellent. Thank you. We've had a great time here at the Egyptian Theater. It's been our temporary home. Town Hall is our primary host, and we're excited to return to them in June when they open after their renovation. We're really looking forward to that. Now, our mission is to support these storytellers, so we live stream our events. For free, anyone can watch them. So if you have friends that couldn't make it tonight, take a moment between talks or intermission, send them the link to the live stream. Get them in. Tell them a talk, that you, a talk that's coming up that you want them to watch. Bring them in to help grow our community. My name, as I mentioned, is Scott Birkin. I'm the speaker coach for Ignite Seattle. I'm also the MC, as you know already. My job is to tie the evening together and help you work your way through it. Our event is very simple, six talks. You know the length of how long they are. We get an intermission of about 20, 25 minutes to go get to the bar, go to the bathroom. Then we do five talks at the second half, but that's not the end of the event. We want to use storytelling to connect people. So our event continues at the after party. All the speakers, all the organizers will be there, and we want you to come. You can ask a question. You can go deeper into the story. You can learn a little bit more behind the scenes of what went on in that person's life or their story and help us make this conversation continue. Now, another way for the conversation to continue is to help us in our next event. Tickets are already on sale for the June 6th event at Town Hall. I've mentioned we sell out now a month ahead. That will probably continue to get faster and faster. So if you have fun tonight, go ahead and buy those tickets. Another way you can think about contributing is to submit. If you're inspired by something you hear tonight, you're like, you know, I have that story. I have that lesson I learned. I have that insight that I wish more people knew. Submit. Anyone can do it. And there's good advice on our website for how to do it well that most people don't read. So if you know how to read, you have a big advantage over everybody else. Our organizing team has grown a lot. Anyone can say, hey, I got this talent, I got this skill, I want to help you. We're open to that. But I'm very proud to announce our new organizing crew that's come on board. Round of applause for them, please. And that's part of why we have a bunch of announcements for you tonight for some new projects and things that we're doing that I think you're going to be excited about. Now, to make all this happen, we have a major sponsor, WeWork. 
They're one of the most popular co-working spaces in Seattle. And as an offer to you as part of their sponsorship, you as a night Seattle attendee can get a week free of co-working space just by following that link. We hope you do that because what they do is cool. The Evergrey is our media partner. They do a fantastic daily newsletter about what's going on in Seattle. I subscribe, I dig it, you should read it too. Go up there and subscribe. And uh, that is the last slide, I believe, in the opening Ignite talk. So thank you for staying with me on that. Thank you. That, I may have made that look easy, but that was really hard. And I've done that before. <laughs> These speakers have not. So I'm very excited to announce the next speaker, who's an Ignite alumni. You may have seen him before. He was unicycling up on this very stage at a few Ignites ago. He is back to talk about the unbearable lightness of being. Please welcome Bruce Dawson to our stage. I'm here tonight to talk to you about the unbearable lightness of being but not the classic Milan Kundera novel of love and adultery in Soviet-occupied Prague. Instead, I'm here to talk to you about the unbearable lightness of being carried to work. <laughs> now, you may well wonder how is it that I ended up with nine of my friends and neighbors carrying me to work in a homemade litter. It's a reasonable question. And it all starts because I'm lucky enough to live and work pretty close to downtown Kirkland. My commute is about one and a quarter miles, and that gives me a lot of flexibility. I usually ride my bike, but if I feel like it, I can walk to work, or I'll jog, I might take the bus, sometimes I ride a unicycle, or I'll rollerblade. And that's six different commute methods without trying. And I thought to myself, well, how much commute diversity could I get if I tried? Could I do a different commute method every day for a month? And I'd wonder this out loud, usually at our Montreal office, and eventually my coworkers got tired of my empty commute bravado. And one of them finally said, Assez parler, fais-le! Which roughly translates to, enough talk, just do it. And so I did, and, and thus was born the commute challenge. And the next month, April 2017, I did it. 20 different commute methods. I, <laughs> I, I swam, I water skied, I segued. I borrowed toys from every friend I could. And it was so much fun that I did it again in September 2018. <laughs> with 19 new commute methods never done before. It was... It was so much fun. I did all these wonderful commute methods. I carpooled in a classic Citroen. I paddleboarded, uh, went with a friend in a wheelchair, and I even walked to work in high heels. Okay, maybe wonderful is the wrong word for that last one. And people, when they found out about this, they were happy to come up with ideas. Oh yeah. Some of them were just way too dangerous. And, <laughs> A lot of them I thought, that sounds great, but there's no way that's gonna happen. And that's what I thought about the litter. I'm, I'm a pretty entitled white male, and yet I, I can't go to my friends and say, hey, what are you doing next week? Wanna carry me to work? 
But the friend who suggested it really loved the idea, and she said, if you make a litter, I'll find the volunteers. I'm, I'm terrible at making things, but a litter is just some two-by-twos and a wooden chair slapped on top. So I sent her this email. <laughs> I was just trying to call her bluff. Like, I never thought this was gonna happen. I was the most surprised when all these people showed up in my house and started carrying me to work. <laughs> they're, they're singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. And I'm wearing a toga and a laurel crown. It was, it was amazing. They carried me the whole one and a quarter miles up three flights of stairs. It was terrifying. And then all the way into the cafeteria. They, just, they wouldn't put me down. It was crazy. And it, was, it was a month of amazing commutes. I, mean, I flew to work two different ways. I, an electric skateboard. I sailed to work on a perfect sunny day, and yet, just because of, of the laughter and the smiles and all the community and camaraderie, there was no doubt that the litter carry was the best. <laughs> I did 39 different commute methods over the course of these two months, and not one of them involved me getting in a car and driving to work by myself. So this brings me... This is the audience participation time because this is your commute challenge. I know some of you drive to, not all of you, drive to work alone in a car. And I want you to think about your commute challenge of sometimes hopping a bus, a bike, or walk, or carpool. Everybody can carpool. It'll make your life more interesting and it'll make the world a better place. So try that. I want to thank my wife and all the people who carried me to work, many of whom are here tonight. <laughs> yeah, I have the best neighbors. And if you want to see the awesome videos that I made celebrating this, tinyurl.com, commute challenge videos, or just search for hashtag commute challenge. Thank you very much. And here they are, right on schedule. I, <laughs> I don't walk anymore anywhere, any, anywhere anymore. You got it, Devin? <laughs> I told you. There were eight of us before, right? There we go. Great job. All right. All right, Bruce. Good job. The secret is Bruce has put on a little bit of weight since that, all that. It's all good, all good, fantastic. So our next speaker, keep things moving along. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good sign when they get applause before I've said a single thing, I love it. Next up is Miss Kyla Yee talking about dating tricks from a former dominatrix. Please welcome her to the stage. By a show of hands, who knows what a dominatrix is? Okay. <laughs> For those of you who might be envisioning a scene from Pulp Fiction or Fifty Shades of Grey right now, I'm going to invite you to put those ideas to the side for the next few minutes. And for those of you who don't know, 
A dominatrix is a professional dominant who's paid to create a safe space for people to explore their kinks and fetishes free of any judgment or shame. So, in my 12 years as a dominatrix, I discovered some surprising and unexpected parallels between the worlds of BDSM and dating. And so tonight, I'm gonna give you four tips that apply both in the dungeon and in the dating world. So, tip number one, play. I would offer people a BDSM sampler platter if they were new to this world. So they could come in and they could try a little bit of bondage, a little bit of spanking, a little bit of nipple torture or puppy play. Because how could you possibly know what you like unless you try it? Play is something that we as adults don't do nearly enough of. And it's how we learn about ourselves, each other, and the world. So, play. Tip number two, know and honor your boundaries. I'd have clients come up to me and say, mistress, you can do anything you want to me. And I'd look at them and be like, really, anything? And they'd be like, yes, anything. And I'd be like, all right, well, in that case, you pay me, and I'll sit and text my friends for a couple hours and ignore you. And all of them were like, uh, maybe not that mistress, but, but anything else. And so I'd be like, all right, well then, in that case, I'll put on my Doc Martens, and I'll stomp on your balls for a couple hours. <laughs> and then most of them would be like, oh, not, not that either, mistress, please. Boundaries are, who, are how you define who you are, and they teach other people how to treat you. If you don't have boundaries, then other people decide what they are for you, and you might not like what they choose. So, know and honor your boundaries, and only allow people to your life who respect them as well. Tip number three, be really honest about who you are and what you want. I once had a client come to me who was very nervous to share his interests because he'd been rejected by past partners and called a freak by an ex-girlfriend. I asked what it was, and he explained he was into WAM, which stands for wet and messy play, also known as splashing. I never tried it before, so I told him to come on in. He shows up at my dungeon doorstep with two huge blue and white coolers. He comes in, he sets them down, he opens it up, and he starts taking out pies. Vanilla cream pies, chocolate cream pies, lemon cream pies, all these pies, and he lays them out really neatly, and then he goes and kneels in the middle of my dungeon, and I pick up a pie and walk up to him, and I wind up, and I smashed him in the face. <laughs> and then I double-pied him, and at that moment, I discovered I really love smashing pies into somebody's <laughs> face. If you haven't tried it, you totally should. So the thing is, he was rejected by past partners for that, which is great, because why wouldn't you want to be with anyone who, didn't, who doesn't love, accept, and honor you exactly as you are? So, be really honest about who you are, because the right people will be drawn closer, and the wrong ones will be repelled away. Finally, my last tip, don't assume. If you assumed that you already knew everything there was to know about professional domination and BDSM, then you wouldn't have space to hear the story about my dom friend in San Francisco, who once a month flies to New York City to see her client, takes a cab to his doorman building, 
takes the elevator all the way up to the penthouse suite, walks straight into his bedroom, sits down by his bed, reads him a bedtime story, tucks him in, kisses him on the forehead, good night. And then she leaves. If you assumed that the world of BDSM and pro-domination is all about whips and leather and chains and nipple clamps, you'd be right. It <laughs> can involve those things. And it can also involve a lot of love. I'm deeply grateful to the world of BDSM and pro-domination because I discovered deeper levels of intimacy and healing that I didn't realize were possible. I got to experience men respecting my no. I remembered how to play. I learned to know and honor my boundaries, to be really honest about who I am and what I want, and to not assume. And yes, these are all tips that apply in the dungeon and in dating, but really, they're reminders for me about how I want to live my life. And maybe they can be reminders for you too. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. All right. I know who the pie lovers are here. You're the ones standing up. That's all right. Everybody likes pie. It's good. There's a writer named Studs Terkel who had this central belief that it was frontline workers, people who cook your food, people who serve your food, people who drive your buses, that have a lot of insight into humanity and what's important. And our next speaker has a story that lines up with that. Andrew Spink is going to talk about intersections, what Uber has taught him about humanity. Please welcome Andrew to our stage. As an Uber driver, I was used to having t conversations with total strangers. What I wasn't used to was those conversations changing my life. I knew right away when I picked up Chad and Steph a few years ago that they would be different. As they tumbled into my back seat, so excited to be on their first ever Uber car, they immediately looked outside and started commenting excitedly back and forth about everything they saw. They were like two giddy school kids on a field trip. They were so present to the world, so alive. In fact, they were looking at the same things I was complaining about, and they were being grateful for them, like the pouring rain, or all the people on bikes or the whole month of June, whatever that meant. <laughs> I was so confused about these people and so interested in who they were, so I found myself blurting out, you guys are so happy, where are you from? <laughs> Steph jumped in right away and said, well, we're really from Mount Vernon, where our kids and our house and our life is, but now I guess you could say we're from Seattle because about a year ago, we bought the apartment that you picked us up at. When I asked why they bought the apartment, she said that she needed a place to stay while Chad was in treatment. And the word treatment sort of hung in the air and a knot formed in my stomach. I summoned up the courage to ask Chad about the treatment. He explained he had a rare form of blood cancer and had been in and out of a variety of treatments for about three years to no effect. And in fact, 
The next morning, Chad was going to check into the hospital, and they were going to do one last procedure to try and stop the cancer. This conversation had gotten so intense, I just, I pulled over to the side of the road and the knot in my stomach became a lump in my throat and I tried to find the words to ask about the treatment and about his chances. Chad said, well, they're about 75% and that made me feel so much better until he finished his sentence. He said, there's about a 75% chance that I will die in the procedure and if I make it through the procedure, there's very little chance it'll do anything for the cancer. He said, you know what, chief? Tonight's pretty much my last night alive, not in a hospital bed. I was fighting to keep the tears back and wondering who these people were when Steph said, that's why we're going out to Chad's favorite restaurant tonight. We're gonna celebrate the life that he's had and our daughters and our family and our 10 years of marriage and just all the life experiences we've had. My head was pounding, and I just let the tears come at this point. Who were these people? I mean, where was the bitterness? Where was the anger? Where was the self-pity? If this was my last night alive, I would not be celebrating. I just wanted to sit there and talk with them for hours. I wanted to go to Mount Vernon and see their life and meet their kids. And most of all, I just wanted to cure Chad. Through the tears, I tried to explain that to Chad as best I could, it mumbled my way through something, and that's when he gave the response that broke me. He said, you know what, bud? I wouldn't trade my life for anyone's. I drove the last few blocks in total silence, trying to see through my tears, wondering how I was supposed to say goodbye to these total strangers. And a minute later, as I'm hugging them on the sidewalk in the pouring rain, I knew this conversation would change my life. And I began to think, what does it take to live like that? What does it take to have that amount of gratitude and presence and fullness to the way you live your life? Maybe it takes suffering of that magnitude to do it. I don't know, but I knew that I had to try. And as I stand here tonight, I just can't help but think that what if we all tried? What if we treated every conversation like it had infinite potential? What if we treated every moment like it was full of possibility? What if we were grateful for the things that we complain about? Maybe then when it's our turn to suffer, we'd be able to say that we wouldn't trade our lives for anyone else's either. And maybe that the way that we suffer, maybe we might change somebody else's life the way that Chad and Steph have changed mine. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is gonna talk about how parents can break the color code. Please welcome Naya Indifrefru, I'm sorry, let me try that again. Let's start over. You didn't hear that. One more time. Repetition is the way to greatness. Do you agree? I agree. Okay. So I'm going to come back on. Okay. Hi, how you doing? That last talk was pretty good, wasn't it? Very good. Our next speaker is going to talk about how parents can break the color code. Please welcome Naya Indefru to the stage. 
I'm sorry about that. Keep the microphone close, okay? When my daughter was about a year and a half, we started teaching her how to count. I'd say one, she'd say two. I'd say three, she'd say four. I'd say five, she'd say six. You get the picture. And we kept doing that until she got to 20. And we were really excited. And then my dad comes over, and I was like, Dad, Zolani can count to 20. He's like, yeah, let's hear it. So Zolani looks at her grandpa and goes, two, four, six, eight. And with each number, I cringe. And I look at my dad, and he has the same look. But then when he looks at her, he's smiling. And she gets to 20. And they're celebrating, and I'm like, oh my. And my dad was an educator. He taught in the university, he taught in high school. And so I say, Dad, how do we fix this? He said, you can't teach her to count by asking her to fill in the blanks. You have to teach her to repeat after you. It was a very important lesson. One of the first things kids learn in school are colors. Red, black, white, yellow, and their numbers and everything else. When my son started going to school, he said, Mommy, why are we called black when we're brown? And why is she called white when she looks peach? And then we had to go to this church where they sang a song calling kids red, yellow, black, and white. Who were the red kids? <laughs> In society, we know there's some codes that you don't break. There's that auntie's house you go to and you have to take off your shoes. And there's Thanksgiving when you must eat that awful thing, right? As kids grow, they learn the code that we teach through our interactions with them. We don't have to say it, but they're learning. My kids are learning color code, and I'm on a mission to break the code. Typically, this beautiful lady at the bottom of the slide is aspirational. Our families traveled across the globe. In Africa, Asia, that's the standard of beauty. My daughter looks at me and says, I want my hair to be straight, mommy. And my son says, mommy, why is my skin darker than yours? When my daughter was born, she was a shade or two darker than I am and people who love me in my family, my friends, looked at my daughter and said, I wish your daughter was as fair as you are. Within the same culture, same race, there are nuances that black and white are not always black and white, right? 
Skin color is social, it's cultural, it's historical when we say black and white. This is my family and friends close and dear to my heart. And we all look different. All shades of brown and melanin. And these are the people who help form the conversations we have with my children. On a recent trip, I was at the airport and a cute little girl, little white girl with ponytails, her bag was right next to me. And she was paralyzed and would not come to me to pick up her bag. And her brother looked at me and her mom did and she was apologetic. And her brother came and took the suitcase and walked away. And I smiled and I said, that was an opportunity like these beautiful ladies in this picture to have a color conversation. Like my dad said, don't skip, have them repeat after you. What are your children repeating after? Have a color conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Naya Indefru. Hold on. Let's all say her name, Naya Indefru. Thank you. Thank you, audience, for helping me recover from a mistake. I appreciate that. All right. Our next speaker is going to talk about an activity you should be familiar with if you came here early. We love at Ignite Seattle to tie our talks with things that you can experience at the event. So this is part of that tradition for us. Danielle Fueg is going to talk about how to make a hyperbolic paraboloid. Please welcome her to the stage. Fueg, all right, hold on. This is one of those nights for me, luckily. In a pastic night, I introduced a speaker to someone else's slides. And they came up on stage and began to try to present someone else's slides. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Fueg. Okay. Take a deep breath. This is good. I'm a public speaking coach. So this video will live on in infamy forever, I am sure. Yeah. Please welcome Danielle Fag to the stage. Hi, I'm Danielle Fegg, and I'm going to teach you all how to make a hyperlock paraboloid. Show of hands, how many of you participated in the origami activity before we started or have done origami before? Wow, that's quite a few of you. I learned how to do origami when I was in first or second grade, got a pack of origami paper, and followed the lame 2D instructions that some of you guys try to follow it out there. This is me with the hyperbolic paraboloid. That's what I'm teaching you how to make. It's a square that's folded 16 times on each of four sides and I'm gonna walk you through. You start with a square piece of paper. Ideally, it's colored at at least one side besides white. Bigger the better. I recommend an eight by eight or nine by nine. If you don't have that, use a piece of printer paper and make it into a square. From there, you end up folding one point to the other to create a triangle. Open it back up and make a triangle the other direction. You'll end up with a box, excuse me, an X. 
And once you have an X, you end up folding all of the outside edges to the middle, creating a smaller square. The key here is you don't want to go outside of your triangle quadrant. So when you crease, you only crease to the outside edge of that triangle. This will create a smaller square inside. What we're doing the whole time is creating 16 smaller squares using mountain and valley folds. That's all you need to know how to make a hyperbolic paraboloid. You could also look at it as an accordion fold. That's really what it's called in origami terms, though. So once you make one in square on the inside, you keep folding to the middle and make more squares. So this time you're going to make four. You take the outside edge, you fold it to the first crease that you have, and then you mountain fold it till you get to the middle. So you alternate mountain and valley folds. And it'll look like this after you've done the mountain and valley folds to the middle to create your four squares total. That's including the piece of paper as the outside square. And making these takes 20 to 30 minutes because of all the little folds. If you don't have that kind of patience at this point, you could just turn it into a pinwheel and you could give it to you know your friend or a kid and they'll enjoy that and no one will ever know that you decided to give up. <laughs> In case you really do want to finish making it, from the four creases on each side total, you then double it to eight. Again, you take the outside edge, you fold it to the first crease, you mountain fold to the next crease, and then you mountain and valley fold till you get to the middle. The key is never go outside of your, your triangle quadrant. So this is me finishing up the eight folds on each side. And from here, you're going to do 16 folds on each side. And you'll see in a second what it looks like when you have eight squares on each side. This is way closer to the hyperbolic probabilid shape. I know it doesn't really look like it yet. And here's a trick. If you really don't want to fold it 16 times on each side, you can stop here, but it won't look as cool. At the end, you'll see how to make it pop into the hyperbolic paraboloid shape. Also, I really recommend having a helper. Kevin, not so helpful. I mean, he's really cute, and he talked a lot at me and meowed, but he didn't really do anything other than kind of get in the way. Here you'll see I've done the 16 folds on two of the four quadrants, and I have two sides left to go. It's really important that you fold very precisely and don't ever go outside of that triangle quadrant that you're in because the goal is you're making 16 smaller boxes. And then you have to go through outside towards the middle and mountain and valley pinch them all together to make the shape pop. And you'll kind of see in the next picture, you want to slowly start kind of pinching them into the middle like that. And eventually, you'll end up with something that looks like this. After you pinch, um, you'll get there in one second. So it's pretty narrow and compact. You could put it in your pocket like I did. And that's what it looks like. And then from there, you just kind of fan it out. And you have this really cool arched shape that you made from a flat piece of paper. And I really recommend that you guys all make bets with your friends and be like, I bet you that I, can't, that I can make an arched match, math shape for five bucks and be like, I bet you can't. Because they don't know how to make a hyperbolic paraboloid and they're gonna be like, wait, what? You can make some 3D shape out of a 2D piece of paper? Also, you can also make interlocking rings. This is another um, shape that you can use using the technique of mountain and valley folds that I learned when I was in Tokyo in April from a gentleman who wrote a book on origami. 
if you want to learn more about origami or you want to show me the cool shapes that you made or your attempt at making a hyperbolic paraboloid, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Seattle City Girl or email me. And show, um, excuse me, I have one of these to give away. Raise your hand if you want one and I'll pick somebody from the audience. All right, and I'm gonna give one to Maya who learned how to make a Starbucks earlier. If you can pass this to the little girl behind you. Thanks guys. So how many of you came early and did some origami before the show started? Raise your hand. Was it fun? Yes, so that will continue at intermission. So if you're now inspired by hyperbolic paraboloids or you want to make something a little easier at the break, which is coming up after our next talk, just head over there after you get a drink and you'll have a fantastic time. Now, as far as names go, I have an advantage for the next one because she is an Ignite alumni. She was actually married up on the Ignite sales stage, which is a fantastic story to ask people who've been to four previous Ignite events about things that go on on the stage that are adventurous and ambitious. And speaking of adventure and ambition, her talk is related to that theme. Tay Phoenix is going to talk about civil disobedience, a beginner's view. Please welcome Tay to the stage. The most wonderful thing about people is that we help each other, right? When we see someone in trouble and we know what to do, we just do it. Like this guy's giving his friend mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation on top of a utility pole after he's been shocked by a live wire. The hard part is when we see someone who's in trouble and the thing that's hurting them is a little bit more abstract or systemic than a live wire. We kind of freeze up and sometimes tune out from the problem. What we're really struggling with in our society right now isn't a desire or a lack of desire to help each other. It's an inability to make that helping impulse scale to systemic issues. And that's what the long tradition of organizing and protesting and getting arrested is about. So the first time that I was ever arrested was last summer with the Poor People's Campaign. We were down in Olympia and we set up a tent city in the middle of a busy intersection to draw attention to the crisis of homelessness that is ongoing in our country. Sometimes people ask, why do protesters block intersections? It's so inconvenient, it alienates people, you're never gonna get anyone on your side that way. And the answer is that the flow of traffic is part of the system. And the system is not working for everyone. It is inconveniencing some people all the time. And so we are saying, stop, we're gonna put our bodies in the middle of the system and make the people who have the privilege of just going about their day pay attention to what is happening to folks who do not have that privilege. So that's really the thing that I want you to think about first. It's my first tip for you. You can use your privilege. Maybe you have light skin. Maybe you have a great education. Maybe you're sitting on half a million dollars of Amazon stock. Maybe you're a dude. <laughs> if you have that systemic power, you can use it. You're gonna face fewer ramifications from being arrested than somebody who doesn't have as great of an education and might struggle to find a job, or someone who has darker skin where the police are more dangerous for them. You have the opportunity to use that privilege. 
Once you decide that you want to use your privilege this way, you have to understand that civil disobedience is a tactic. Getting arrested is not the goal. It has to ladder up to something, and you really want to make sure that that tactic ladders up to the goal that you want to achieve. So to illustrate that point, I want to talk about the second, third, and fourth times that I was arrested, all in Washington, D.C., during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. So obviously we were not successful in keeping this sexual assaulter off of the Supreme Court, but we did achieve some really important things. First of all, we created a real pressure cooker in DC, and under that pressure, Brett Kavanaugh cracked. He showed us who he really was, and he committed perjury. And because of that, later on, we can remove him from the Supreme Court. The second thing that we were able to achieve is we forced the Republicans to show their hand. This was a power grab. They were so desperate to have a Supreme Court justice who believed that a sitting president cannot be indicted that they put that guy on the court. And the third thing, that really pissed a lot of people off. It pissed me off. Did it piss you off? Yeah. All right. Well, that drove a lot of people to the polls in November, and that's part of the reason why we took back the House of Representatives. So I think that those were three really successful things. Finally, if you decide you want to do this, go in knowing the same songs as the people you're getting arrested with. This is actually really important. So the first time I ever disobeyed a direct order from a police officer was a year before I got arrested. It was the weekend that the Unite the Right rally was taking place in Charlottesville, and we actually had a white supremacist group holding their own rally in Westlake Park. We set up a counter-protest and ended up in a standoff with SPD at the corner of Second and Pine. They started firing off flashbang grenades and pepper spraying people and threatened to arrest every single person in the intersection if we didn't clear it. And I've never seen anything like this in my life. 500 people just sat down and we started singing, we shall not be moved. And five minutes went by and 10 minutes and 15 minutes and we started getting messages from our scouts at Westlake that the cops were clearing out the white supremacist group because they could not guarantee their safety. There were simply too many of us and we were not obeying. If you don't want to get arrested, there are lots of things you can do. You can film and be a moral witness. That's what we call it in the Poor People's Campaign. You can hold on to people's stuff so that it doesn't get taken into custody. And you can be there when they get out of jail with warm socks, a snack, and a hug. My name is Tay Phoenix, and I'm an activist and singer-songwriter here in Seattle. And I just want to remind every single one of you, we outnumber him. Resist. Thank you. They're running on their way to be civilly disobedient in the lobby, which is another activity we may have, origami slash civil disobedience. How are you feeling? We're almost done with the first half. Feeling good? Excellent. I have a few brief announcements that are important about the future of this event, which I hope now you have some interest in. The first thing, I want to thank an organization called The World is Fun. Now, the World is Fun? Yeah, all right. The World is Fun has been our fiscal sponsor. We are an all-volunteer organization, and the World is Fun is an organization that helps all-volunteer organizations. And they've been our fiscal sponsor, which means all the donations we get from sponsors and other people, they help us, they hold that money for us, and allow us to access it. But we have taken a big step for Ignite Seattle, which is a 10-year-old organization that has big ambitions for the future. That as of this week, we have become a 5013C organization ourselves. 
which gives us a lot of access to independence and opportunities, some of which we'll talk about later today. So I want to thank the World is Fun. They've been helpful in transitioning us from being where we were to where we want to go. My second announcement, those photos you saw of all the speakers, what'd you think of those? Were those nice? Yeah, pretty cool. That's a new thing for us. And we have a new volunteer organizer to thank, and her name is Melinda Hurst Fry. Is she around, Melinda? Hey, hey! Right up front. She's a fantastic example of the spirit of Ignite. We are all organizers. I'm sorry, we're all volunteers and organizers. And all of you who are there, maybe there's a skill or talent you have that you think we're, we don't know about yet, that we could use. We want you to reach out to us. And so she's a great example, very recent example, of a way to help improve this event and highlight our speakers. Now, the third announcement I have for you has to do, well, I'm going to introduce someone to the stage who's going to explain what this is about. But let me introduce him in a very clear and honorable way. Events like this often don't last very long. Volunteer organizations have high attrition rates. People are excited to start them, but eventually they become these tasks that have to be done that are like chores, that are the heartbeat of making events work that a lot of people aren't willing to put in the time to do. So this event was started by uh, Brady Forrest and Bray Pettis in 2006, and one of the people who was there was a guy named Brian Zug. And Brian Zug did a lot of the work that was core to making the event work that didn't get that much didn't get that much attention. He was not the MC for the event. He was not the person whose name went on the letterhead, but he was the person who made sure, event after event, that there was a core, intelligent, thoughtful presence validating what was going on. And that's part of what wanted me to become part of this event. What made me want to be a speaker coach and eventually the MC and one of the main organizers. So I'm going to invite Brian Zug to the stage who's going to tell you a story about another organizer. Please welcome Brian to the stage. Thank you. So I want everybody to look way up there in the corner. There's a guy named Adam Weigel. Weigel, come down here to the stage, please. I'm going to tell you a little bit. So I showed up as the guy. I was hanging out in Seattle around 2005. I didn't know a lot of people. Uh, I had a background in Flash development. Remember Flash? Um, <laughs> and uh, video, and I was like, hey, have you guys heard about this YouTube thing? I think it might be, like, video on the internet might be a thing. Um, and so Brady Forrest, when he started Ignite, needed some help with video. Uh, I showed up at that very first event. We recorded it. We put the videos online. Words started to spread. Um, and uh, so we kind of, I've helped with video originally. And at Ignite 15 in 2011, in the summer, um, I found a guy to help me with video because I was tired of editing and doing all the videos by myself. And uh, I convinced a guy, hey, we might be able to start a business together and uh, work on videos. And one of our main things that we do sort of as a volunteer thing um, is to help out Ignite Seattle. So I invited... Uh, Adam Weigel. Adam, come up on stage, please. So, since... Right there, right there. Since Ignite 15, uh, which is like 24 nights ago, that's a lot of Ignites ago, that's over 350 videos ago, plus videos ago. This guy started helping out, um, doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work that... Uh, for the last probably four years, like his videos are online 
before you go to sleep the night of Ignite, right? Incredible turnaround, incredible dedication. This is Adam's last night leading video for us. He's gotten a really cool new gig. He lives in Tacoma now, he didn't used to. And so he, he's been commuting up here for the last like three or four years or more to do this for us. Um, and we just wanted to give him a really big Ignite thank you. So uh, Zach made our very own Ignite plaque. Thank you, Adam Weigel, for your dedication and support. Love, Ignite Seattle. So uh, give him a big thank you. Um, thank you all. Yeah, we appreciate you. I don't, I haven't a yeah. A major problem we have in life is when we deal with people with this conflict. Conflicts are the difficult part of relationships at work or in families. And we're gonna have a talk by an insider to help us be better at dealing with those situations. Alexander Theo Harris is gonna talk about convincing people an attorney's guide to negotiation. Please welcome him to the stage. Hello, Ignite Seattle. My name is Alexander Theo Harris, and today I'm going to be talking about getting your way. As you may know, your way is the best way, but sometimes other people haven't realized that yet. I'm here to help you correct that. I'm a business attorney. I negotiate deals all day long, but whether it's for a half million dollars in your business sale or convincing your friends to go to Thai food for the third night in a row, the same principles apply. You've probably heard a lot of truths. Always give the first number. Stay silent until they give the first number. Learn the names of their friends and family and refer to them often. There's no one thing that will always work. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. Except me. I'm gonna tell you three things that always work because they open doors. And the more doors you have open in a negotiation, the easier it is to find a path to success. Number one, collaborate first. Collaborating first means working with the other parties to find an amicable solution. It, it's not just to be nice. If you come out of the gate, bright green, Hulk smash, and then try to back down, you're just waving that white banner. If you keep cool, you can always escalate later. An attorney gave me a call and they came out of the gate shouting and insulting my client. After 10 minutes of this, they'd finally run out of steam. And lo and behold, they apologized for their tone and agreed to terms in my client's favor. What did they do wrong? If you come out of the gate hot, your only choice is to erupt. If you start cool, you have more paths open to you. At the start of a negotiation, you don't know what the final door is going to be, so you want to keep as many paths open as possible. Number two, at the start of a negotiation, you need to discover one thing as quickly as possible. Why does the other side want what they want? Usually it's easy, they'll tell you. Oh, they want Italian tonight, or uh, they, they'll sell you the car for less than it's worth, or the zookeeper keeps telling you the sloth isn't for sale. <laughs> but are they right? Are they trustworthy? <laughs> After a lot of research, it turns out the zookeeper is. But the others, do they even know what they want? Or are they just saying what they think you need to hear? I had another attorney tell me that we couldn't close a deal until March 1st. No ifs, ands, or buts. Locked in stone. Uh, 
My client wanted to close earlier, so I asked the inevitable question, why? Turns out, they had some equipment that they couldn't move until the first because they didn't want to have to store it somewhere. Knowing that, my client was totally happy to pay moving and storage costs to be able to move in three weeks earlier. It's a win for my client, and it's a win for them because they don't care one way or the other. That's the thing here. You find those low-cost trades. You trade something that doesn't matter to you, a little bit in storage fees, for something that's high value, like getting to open your office earlier. But you never know unless you ask why. If everybody walks away from the table thinking they've won, you've done your client a tremendous service. If the other side walks away thinking that you've won, you are in for a world of hurt. Why? Before I go further, I, I want to make this clear. I am not suggesting that you need to make objectively fair trades. You're not looking for objectively fair deals. If you do so, kudos, gold star, you did great. But for the vast majority of people, all that matters is getting the perception of fairness. If they don't have that, they'll come back, and I've had this happen time and again. We get a deal, handshake, everybody's happy. Two days later, somebody comes walking around. Uh, actually, I lost the check in the mail, or there's a lawsuit pending. It's really easy to push somebody through a door, but it's hard to barricade the door behind them. If somebody willingly walks through that door, though, it's pretty simple to keep them there. Your goal in your negotiations is not to outsmart everyone. Your goal is to look around the table and see everyone with their thumb on the scale and convince them that they are pushing hardest. If you do that, everyone walks away happy and you have a deal locked in stone. So three things. One, collaborate first. Two, ask why. And third, everyone wins or you lose. Use all three on your next negotiation, whether it's divvying up startup equity or deciding what you're doing later tonight. I'm Alexander Theo Harris. You can find me online at apexlg.com or on Twitter at satire. Thank you for listening. And I wish you all the best in your next negotiation. That was a good talk. Uh, we had to pay a lot of money to get him to do that, but we're very happy about paying all that money. Our next speaker, I mentioned earlier on storytelling is central to how we view the world, and I mentioned that family is really based on story, and this talk lines up directly with that theme of the surprises you can find when you start wanting to really truly understand the story of where you came from. Our next speaker is going to talk about Speakeasy's Felons and Prohibition Moonshine, a family DNA love story. Please welcome Tracy Ramoser to the stage. Ninety, let's go back 90 years to a bungalow in Flint, Michigan, my hometown. There are two little boys sitting on the front porch and it's Easter Sunday. They've just been given Easter bunny lollipops and they're going at the ears. The youngest little boy looks out and he sees a line of cars coming toward them and he knows that, notices they're police cars. They're coming to his house. Well, this isn't a surprise because the night before, the same police officers were in their basement with their girlfriends, but today, it was a raid. 
And as they tipped over all the tables, poured out the booze, they apologized and said to my great-grandma B, see you next Friday. Great-grandma B, she ran a prohibition speakeasy. <laughs> and my grandpa remembers driving over Windsor, over the bridge to Detroit, on top of barrels of booze, wrapped in blankets, pretending to sleep so the cops, the US Customs, wouldn't bust them. He lived a long life, but we didn't know as much about B, and I decided we needed to learn her story. And we started researching. We really dug into some information about my great-grandma uh, B, and my Aunt Diana found her name, she thought, on an Indian census in Sugar Island. So for kicks, I took a DNA test, and I had access to digital files and, and documents. And I started doing the research, and right away I ran into some, some roadblocks and inconsistencies. First of all, she was born in Lapeer, Michigan, which if you know anything about Michigan, it's in the middle of the state. Sugar Island was very far away. And so I started to look a little deeper into prohibition and noticed that we, as a state in Michigan, went dry three years before the US. Prohibition went into effect in 1920. Michigan was dry in 1917. We had a three-year head start. And most of the booze that came through Michigan or through to the US came through the Windsor-Detroit funnel because along Detroit, you can see right across to Canada. So it was very easy for bootleggers to run boats across. They even had the Grand Trunk Railway as a, as a you know, an option for smuggling booze. So Grand Funk is not just a, an American band. About this time, my ancestry DNA results came back and we had some surprises and I called my mom. There was no Indian ancestry. And furthermore, <laughs> I did a little research in gene genealogy and learned that, you know, you don't, and we most of us know this, you aren't a 50-50 you know, split of your parents. There's, it just doesn't work that way. And I told my mom, and she said, well, can't you do something about that? <laughs> and I said, mom, no, it, it's, it's science. And at the same time, I went back to Michigan, I found out that my, my uncle Frank was a convicted felon. My great uncle Frank ran booze, possibly for the Purple Gang. So I started digging around. I, I really started digging in for documentation, and I'm talking to historians, librarians, I'm making friends with everyone. I find the deed or the divorce, um, you know, documents for my grandma B, and I call my mom and I tell her this, and she's like, ugh, you know, well, Actually, there's a story there. And I find out even more that my great-grandpa, Harold, before he married my grandma B, she actually lived in a boarding house with Jimmy Coy, her second husband. <laughs> my mom says, do something about this. And I went to bed that night kind of upset. Um, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, and all of a sudden, it occurs to me, my family on both sides were involved with 
the same activities, at the same time, doing the same things, what if they bumped into each other? Maybe that's the story. And I decide to start writing longhand. And I wrote my first draft of a book. I called my mom and I told her and she said, there you go. So I'll leave you with one last thing, one last fact. The first state to repeal prohibition, Michigan. There are some talks that don't require much introduction, and, and this is one of them. The titles eloquently speak for themselves. Heather Smith is going to talk about life after death and instructional guide. Please welcome Heather to our stage. Some people say you only live once, and the truth is we live every day, and we often forget that. On July 25, 2017, I was leaving my office early for a dentist appointment. Later that day, I was going to launch the startup I'd been working on for the last two years. I was so excited, and all of a sudden, a guy making an illegal turn mowed me down in a crosswalk. Everything went white, and the last thing I remember for several minutes was seeing underneath his car and thinking, I'm going to die. I'm an outlier. The reason you don't hear much about pedestrian versus car accident survivors is because most of us don't make it. Those of us who do are so consumed with trying to resume our lives that we don't have time to talk about it or we're too traumatized. The other reason my experience is different is that most of these accidents happen when it's dark in unmarked intersections or areas with no crosswalks. The place I was hit was clearly marked there were, there were signals that tweeted at you. It was a bright, sunny day. I even made eye contact with the guy who ran over me, and he later told the police he saw me, but he was in a hurry. The extent of my injuries was staggering. My life changed forever that day. I couldn't dress myself, I couldn't bathe, I couldn't cook, I couldn't clean, I couldn't brush my own hair. If I hadn't had the financial resources to pay for my own care, I would have been institutionalized. I had a traumatic brain injury. I had issues with memory and cognitive function. I still have PTSD. I had months to sit and think about what it really meant to be alive. When you're in bed, you get a lot of time to think. And I realized that the two most important words and most often misused words in the English language were yes and no. At first, people are really supportive. Your friends show up, your colleagues rally around you, and then the visits stop after about a year. I realized the importance of yes and no, and I'd love to tell you that that came to me really quickly, and I forged bravely ahead. The truth is I was terrified. I experienced tremendous self-doubt, and there were a lot of days where I wondered if I would be better off dead. But even though I'd been told I might never make a full recovery, I refused to accept that. I vowed that once I had my physical strength back and my cognitive function, I was gonna flip yes and no. 
Too often we say yes to the wrong things and no to the wrong things. We say yes to jobs that are unfulfilling. They pay our bills, but they leave us feeling empty. We say yes to social engagements with people who drain our energy. They wouldn't be there in our hour of need. Why do that? We say no to the wrong things as well. We say, oh, someday, someday I'll take that vacation. Maybe I'll study a martial art or learn another language. None of us gets a guarantee that we have tomorrow. So I made some big changes. I decided to say yes to leaving an unfulfilling job and traveling the world. I met up with the friends who supported me when I needed them most. I made new friends. I said yes to living at a Muay Thai camp in Chiang Mai for a few months. I visited museums in many countries and saw masterpieces I'd only ever seen in books. I finally said yes after many years of putting it off to meeting with my mentor, one of the most famous data scientists on earth. I started saying no to social engagements if I was too tired or having a bad PTSD day. I said no to flaky friends. I was done investing in relationships with no ROI. I also said no to toxic family members and cut contact. The bottom line is this. Sometimes life deals you a really terrible hand, but you can fix it if you really believe in yourself and you say yes and no to the right things. Thank you. So, so first, thank you, Heather. Uh, Tay mentioned this in the opening of her talk. She talked about responding to people who need help, and it's a choice that we all make. Uh, she talked about privilege, but it's a choice we all make in our ordinary lives. When do we stop to help and do something? And so there's a part of her story that we have a special, I have a special thing to, to share with you. So there was a person who was the first to respond after she was, after, her ac after the accident happened, and he's actually here. Uh, his name is David Rhoda, and he's right here up front. Can you stand up, David? Thank you. Can I, can I just share real quick? So, Dave, I didn't know that, I have no memory of this. I learned when I heard the witness statements. Um, Dave pulled his truck into oncoming traffic to keep the guy from running, and to prevent other people from running over me. He selflessly put his own safety on the line and pulled me out from under the car. This is the first time I've seen him, and Dave, thank you for being here tonight, and more than anything, thank you so much for what you did, because if you hadn't, I more than likely wouldn't be standing here today. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Don't dry those tears quite yet. <laughs> I have another talk that does not need much of an introduction. Kate Pond is going to talk about when my husband said, I don't want my penis anymore.
Please welcome Kate to our stage. It's important for me to tell you that this is my story from my perspective. These are my feelings and my opinions. In 2008, I met the man of my dreams. He was brilliant, talented, hilarious. My family loved him. He was everything I could have asked for and more. Our relationship had its ups and downs, its breakups and reconnections. But by the summer of 2014, we were happily married and became the Pond family. Now, our marriage wasn't easy either. We moved twice, I had major surgery, and I decided to undergo a career change. None of that change, however, could have prepared me for our one-year anniversary, where at a small roadside diner near Anchorage, Alaska, where we had first met. My husband told me that he had been taking estrogen for six months, and no longer did he want his penis. I was in complete shock. I had no idea. When I met him, he was working for the Boy Scouts. He was about to join the Navy. During our relationship, he rebuilt a car he did lots of woodwork. He did everything that a man was supposed to do. But after a lot of discussion, I realized that she could no longer pretend to be a man. In the coming months, we got her a therapist, and she started to take prescription estrogen. This was a really hard time for me, because I really desperately wanted to celebrate her and her courage to move forward and to become who she was supposed to be. But I was grieving for the loss of my husband, the loss of the life I thought I was going to have. I didn't have a therapist. I had her, but she was on a journey of her own. I turned to online groups, but what I found there was a lot of anger, and I just didn't want to be angry. I felt really alone. I couldn't have been happier when we started coming out to friends and family. Her family, for the most part, was uh, very accepting. We had some friends that ghosted us and some friends that were very supportive. It was my family that really surprised me. I don't know if they saw my grief and followed suit and just missed all the other emotions I was having but I didn't need to hear that my life was gonna be so much harder if I stayed with my wife, or that my wife is a liar, or that I would find a better man. All I needed was for them to sit with me and support me and tell me that no matter what decisions I made moving forward, that they would support me in that. I got a therapist. I'm so glad that I did, because I really thought things were moving forward and things were getting better. So I decided to really pursue my career change, and that meant moving to Seattle. 
But when the time came to move to Seattle, my wife realized that it was too much change for her. She had too much change coming up in her life, and she couldn't make the move. She felt that I had left her, and I fell into one of the deepest depressions I've ever experienced. And it wasn't until I finally found a therapist here in Seattle that I started to realize that I needed to love myself. I needed to figure out what I wanted and what I needed in order to move forward. I reached out to friends. I surrounded myself with things that I thought might make me happy. And I started doing mantras. I am worthy. I am enough. I am strong. I am loved. I know that I'm a work in progress, but I figure that if the love of my life can try to figure out who she's supposed to be, then so can I. I am loved. I am strong. I am worthy. I am enough. Thank you. It's my allergies. Yeah. Yay, allergies. That's a talk. You should, that's a talk submission. We look forward to. Allergies as an excuse for men who are afraid to cry. Okay. Another talk that does not require an introduction because she's going to explain what it means when she takes the stage. Nicole Verkylan is going to talk about run Forest Stump Run. Please welcome our last speaker of the evening to our stage. I lost my leg to bone cancer when I was 10 years old. And I remember that first summer after my last chemotherapy treatment, after I'd finally beaten cancer, all I wanted to do was just play in the water with my friends. But I was shocked to realize that my prosthesis wasn't waterproof. And this was the only prosthesis that my insurance would cover. So my parents quickly wrote into insurance to see if we might be able to get me a waterproof prosthesis. But the claim was immediately denied, saying that having access to a prosthesis that was waterproof was a convenience item for an amputee. As I got into middle school and high school, I started playing sports competitively. And with this added activity, my prosthetic foot kept breaking down. So my parents looked at me again and said, Nicole, let's see if we can get you one of those running blades, the same running blades that I had seen all over the media with our Paralympians and our veterans coming home from war. But again, the claim was denied, saying that having access to a prosthesis built to run was not medically necessary. But I didn't let this stop me, because being an athlete was a core part of my identity, and it was something I loved to do. And so I started setting my goals even higher. I started doing 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and triathlons, and I even started coming in first in my age group. But with this added training and these extra miles, my rest of my body started to overcompensate for my prosthesis, and I was left with debilitating back pain. After 16 years of being told no, I had finally had enough. And that's when I realized I wasn't the only one. 
that there were countless other amputees just like me, two million amputees in the United States who were also systematically being denied access to the appropriate prosthetic technology to be physically active and to just live our lives. And that's when I realized that I needed to do something about it and that I wanted to help be a voice for change. And so I did what any millennial would do. I quit my job, started an Instagram account, and decided to take on a 15, thank you. Took on a 1,500 mile triathlon from Seattle to San Diego to raise awareness. Swimming, biking, and running for two months. I recruited my mom, my partner Natalie, and my friend Kathleen, and we called our journey Forest Dump. I knew I had the athleticism to make it to the finish, but the biggest question was whether or not my only prosthesis would survive the journey. Our journey didn't start out according to plan. Uh, the first five days, Seattle at that time had overcome this major heat wave. We were biking 100 uh, miles a day in 100 degree weather. Then we got to the Columbia River Gorge where we were scheduled to swim across. And the Eagle Creek forest fires had taken over, but we decided to swim it anyway. And then when we got to the Oregon coast, as we were going 30 miles per hour downhill, my partner Natalie slammed on her left hand brake, went end over end, landed on her shoulder, and into the emergency room. Despite separating her shoulder, she was back on the bike in 10 days. Then we, we finally got into a groove as a team, and we ran, ran through the Redwood Forest. I swam underneath the Golden Gate Bridge in a swim called the Shark Fest Swim. We biked over the Bixby Bridge in Big Sur, California. We scaled nearly 65,000 feet of elevation. Mile after mile, our bodies got stronger and stronger, but my prosthesis got weaker and weaker, to the point in Southern California where it finally broke. I was devastated, but I wasn't new to disappointment. Once again, my prosthesis had not lived up to my dreams. Luckily, a manufacturer came to the rescue and donated a new one so that we continue the journey to San Diego. And that's when the most incredible moment of my life happened. I was called up on stage at the Challenge Athletes Foundation's biggest event of the year, and they donated me my very own running blade. This was something that I had waited 16 years of my life to finally have access to. And as you can imagine, I was in tears, my family was in tears, and in that moment, as grateful as I was, I knew that no amputee should have to go to that length to prove that they deserve access to a limb. And so since then, I've founded Forest Stump as a nonprofit advocacy organization. I've taken my story to DC to meet with policymakers. We've filmed a documentary. And my ultimate goal is to change legislation so that all amputees have access to the technology they need to be active and to live their best life. Thank you so much. You can follow me on Instagram, at Runs Forest Thumb. Part of, I failed as a speaker coach of when you're getting a standing ovation to notice that it's happening. <laughs> it's all on video, you'll be able to watch it later.
So we're at the end of the evening. A couple of short things before you go, so please pay attention. First thing, there's many people involved in making the event you experience tonight. First, I'd like all of our speakers, if you spoke tonight, please stand up. All speakers, if you spoke tonight, stand up. A round of applause for all of them, please. For all of them. Thank you. Stay, you can stay up, stand up, stand up. All of our organizers, organizers and volunteers, please stand up. Organizers and volunteers. Thank you. You can all sit down now. I'm the MC. I am one of the organizers. I'm the most visible one. But it takes a lot of people's effort, like Brian and Adam Weigel and all the people you saw standing to put on an event like tonight. So a few brief announcements before I send you on your way. First, Ignite Seattle 39, our next event, is on June 6th. Tickets are on sale now. We sell out months, month ahead. It's probably going to be faster this time. So if you had fun tonight, go buy tickets. Buy tickets for your friends and bring them along. Get in before it sells out. Thing number two. No, tickets are on sale. Okay. Thing number three. Fantastic. Moving right along here. After party. You were connected with at least one or two of our speakers tonight. You like their stories. Walk up the street. It's a block. They have margaritas. They have guacamole. Who doesn't like guacamole or margaritas? It's right there. And speakers and organizers, please come. Continue the conversation. Talk to us about being part of our community. And we hope to see you there or if not at our next event. Thank you and have a fantastic weekend. Thank you very much. Thank you.